From South Carolina Public Radio, this is Walter Edgar's Journal. I'm Walter Edgar, welcoming you to our podcast series about South Carolina culture and history, with a nod to all things Southern. Today, Alfred Turner and I will talk to Dr. Eric Crawford, a Gullah Geechee scholar and associate professor of musicology at Claflin University in Orangeburg. He's going to share stories of Gullah culture and will tell us about editing the second edition of the late Wilbur Cross's book, Gullah Culture in America. Gullah Culture in America chronicles the history and culture of the Gullah people who live in the Lowcountry region of the American South. The book tells the story of the arrival of enslaved West Africans to the sea islands of South Carolina and Georgia and the melding of their African cultures, which created distinct Creole language, cuisine, traditions, and arts. Eric, welcome to Walter Redgood's Journal. I think some of our folks hear terms today and they get confused. People talk about the Gullah Geechee Corridor, what is Gullah or what is Geechee? So let's define those terms to begin with. Yes, and, and there's always that sort of debate as to what it is. Um, Gullah, I believe, uh, traces back to Angola. Uh, there was a, um, during the Denmark Vesey Rebellion, there was a person named Gullah Jack. Mm-hmm. He was from Angola. And so we believe over time, instead of saying Angola, Angola, Gullah became that shortened version. Mm-hmm. There's also, however, a Gullah tribe in Western Africa, and believe also that can be traced there as well. Ogeechee, uh, we believe, can be traced to two meanings. And there was the Ogeechee River in Georgia, mm-hmm. where some of the enslaved Africans settled, and so they were called Geechees. There's also though, a Kisi tribe in West Africa, near Liberia, and that could also be a possible origin. But in common terms, typically those who are in Georgia cling to being Geechees. Those in South Carolina tend to call themselves more Gullahs. And so now we try and have this combination, Gullah-Geechee. There's also this corridor that was uh, created uh, through the help of Congressman Clyburn. It was a Gullah-Geechee corridor, which is embraces actually North Carolina down through Florida. Those four states and 20 miles inland. And so that comprises this Gullah-Geechee Cultural Heritage Corridor. And part of that shows the expansion of rice culture from South Carolina because they expanded into North Carolina, uh, of course, into Georgia. And even people forget that when Florida became English in the colonial period, South Carolinians moved to Florida. Indeed, 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 yes. And so, you know, um, here in South Carolina, we use the term Carolina gold, and that's how priceless rice was. All right. Well, for many years, people thought Gullah was a Creole language, Pigeon English, um, this is what the fancy wordsmiths described it at the turn of the 20th century. But that's not the case at all. It is a language. It is. And, you know, one of my challenges in life is to really promote the aspect that it's not corrupt English. Though it has English loan words there, it's based upon a West African foundation. And that goes back to Lorenzo Dow Turner, who first found that in the uh, 40s and 50s. And so we have this culture that is based upon West African words, uh, lexicon, syntax, and so on. Even though they were the enslaved were taken, brought here to this country, they still remembered how their language went. 
And there was a sense of a Creole that was very common in Sierra Leone and Liberia in West Africa. And because oftentimes the white planters brought the enslaved from similar parts of West Africa, they all knew this Creole. I mean, they were from Sierra Leone and Georgia. And so, you know, we've had these uh, these trips back to Sierra Leone. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes the, the, the young gallows from uh, St. Helena and from Georgia can speak clearly to those in Sierra Leone in that Creole. And that ties together, you know, those two countries and those two worlds. One of the interesting reasons that Gullah culture survived was the way, certainly in South Carolina, the enslavers created their plantations. Rice plantations weren't these 10,000-acre things. They created small working plantations with 40 or 50 enslaved persons there, maybe, maybe a white overseer, maybe not. So for 200 years, that community lived in isolation from the white world. Right. And in fact, during the summer months, during the malarial months, those white uh, planters' families would kind of leave, leaving maybe an overseer there. And so the enslaved were further isolated, not to mention they were on an island, so there were, was no bridge there. And so this culture stayed there. And even today, you know, they, they have these um, communes almost. They're still isolated oftentimes. And so the, this language, this culture still survives today. I had a young lady at uh, Glafton. I was at the um, educational office just sitting there, and this girl comes in speaking pure gala. Mm-hmm. I sat there amazed. I said, but where are you from? North Charleston. <laughs> and I said to myself, my gosh, she's maybe 20 years old, and her great-grandmother still is alive. I can only imagine how she speaks. Wow. I'd like to move now into the role of Penn Center in terms of, of Gullah culture. It has positives and negatives. Uh, positives in the fact that these white women primarily came from the North during uh, the Civil War and created school for the freed persons, but wanted them to forget their primitive ways, language, what have you. It's very complex. You know, I um, oftentimes, um, get, on a given day, I'll think one way and then change. As I did this book, it amazed me to kind of track through Laura Towns. Mm-hmm. You know, from sort of her her view, you know, of going to this area there and the Union troops who were very difficult to her mm-hmm. and and uncritical, and then having to be in this place that she had to actually do drills with her soldiers there in order to, because there was a fear of the Confederate Army coming there. Mm-hmm. So she had to do these, these, these drills with firearms. And the idea that her first class, there were babies there or adults. And so it was very difficult conditions. And so you know, being a teacher, I can only sympathize with her in what she had to do. And so for her, she used these northern educational methods, and it, it proved fantastic. It, uh, you know, they were able to quickly uh, learn to read and speak. And, and to her, I think for her, it was best that they not speak any Gullah. Now, as we kind of look back upon that, you know, uh, I wouldn't call it being paternal, mm-hmm. being unfair, but she was able to get these students who could not read, who could not right, to be able to function in, in a world that she saw was uncritical for them. It can be said that there could have been some way to balance. Mm-hmm. You know, we can allow them to do the ring shout. We can allow them to speak at home that they're a language. 
But you know, with with any with any students, you know, the the best way to get them to learn to, um, to educate them is that there's consistency not only in school but also at home too. So as a teacher, I can understand that. Now, as musicologists, as a historian, it's 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 it's, it's a shame that the culture had to lose so much. As a result, mm. Eric, it was she from New England. Oh, up north. I'm not sure. I think Massachusetts, perhaps, but there was somewhere. Yeah, Boston, somewhere up there. I think I'm Boston just wondering was. how much of that 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 stern New England way of teaching had to add to some of that too. Well, Philadelphians played a major yes. role. Oh, Quaker, okay, yeah. Quakers. It's it's all ah. it's all very. Th- this isn't loose Episcopalians. This this is this <laughs> right. is this yes. is very. Rigid pedagogy. That's, yeah. yeah, but you know when you're when you're in, I mean, these conditions. You know, if you think about a malaria is killing your friends, and you're with, with these people, and there's uncertainty, and and they don't trust you. You can't understand them, and these troops aren't helping at all. So it's those are very difficult conditions. So I tend to be forgiving. And she, she ended up learning to speak Gullah, did she? She was fluent in Gullah and was a wonderful nurse, too. And so, in fact, she would begin to use some of the remedies for things, life everlasting, sassafras, those things. And so, I think in the end, she began to appreciate it. Well, there's so many facets of, of Gullah culture that for years, most white folks ignored. In fact, they usually ignored Gullah because that was slave talk, although even in the 18th and 19th century, there were white Carolinians who did learn Gullah, but it was rare. There's a point in my book, and it it asks, can't a white person learn to speak Gullah? And I say, yes, they can, they can. But I said, but a white child never is fully in that black child's world. And so in in the end, they can speak, but they never are privy to that black child's world. Well, here's a story that's personal. My late mother-in-law, when she was, and if she were alive today, she'd be in her late 80s. She was from uh, Clarendon County, but she and her mother uh, moved to Columbia, South Carolina, and she was at one of the older high schools. Actually, I think it was a middle school at that time or junior high. And suddenly this young woman from the low country comes up and no one can understand her. But Mary Alice Rogers could because she could speak Gullah. And so she was this child's translator and eased her into this culture shock that she was experiencing, which I'm sure must have been great. I think for um, educators, especially those who are in the low country, it would would help them greatly if they at least had a a working knowledge of Gala language. Sure. As they as they hear these kids and count these kids, they can they can now best help them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, even though people are now putting Gullah in books, Gullah was a spoken language, yes. and that goes with verb contents. If you said, um, "I come for we house," perfect Gullah. <laughs> but in the context, it could mean I'm going to the house. I am at the house, and part of the expression would be, uh, Eric would be looking at me, and I might, how I say that, he's reading my body language. But you know, for any language, there is an informal uh, approach, and more formalized. And so I think for Gullah, uh, having, you know, I think it's a good to have something now, something formal. And um, it took them 30 years to <laughs> come to that. But now we have the Gullah, Gullah Bible, and Joe Opala now is, is working on a, a grammar book. 
as well as a um, literary book that would be in Gullah. And so I think for me, having, having a beginning point, a point to tell those who are Gullah, this is your language. I remember when Joe Pauley came to Coastal Carolina University and taught a course on Gullah language. Seeing those Gullah speakers come out and say, I never knew what I spoke was a language and a sense of pride. And so for us, we need more of those. Yes, there would be so many variations. There would be those who say, now this is the way I talk it here. Mm-hmm. You know, but in terms of having these guys, these books, these versions that we can say, this is how the language is spoken generally. And seeing it in print gives that culture validity, I believe. But, you know, one of the things I think is important is spirituals have codes you know, you could change the word here and there. But oftentimes, it's also the speed, the tone, the voice arising that could change a meaning drastically. And that was sort of the genius of the enslaved. Before we went on the air, you were saying, as a musicologist, mm-hmm. uh, the spiritual kumbaya. That term people use is not what the Gullah started out saying. No, no. In fact, you know, it, um, it translates to actually come by here. Uh, there was a 1925 recording in Charleston, and the first words were come by here. And because the enslaved couldn't say the H sound, it would be come by ya. And for those um, who come to the islands, to the um, corridor here, those who are from the islands call themselves benyas. They've been here. They're from here. Those who are visiting are called kamyas. They're coming here. And so... I believe that kumbaya, as we tend to say it, means come here, Lord, come here. And so I'm at a classroom now when I have a wonderful quarter writer, Dr. Charlie Toomer, and he really pushed me to do an arrangement. And so the very first one that I arranged was kumbaya as kamya. And it begins with this sense of come here, Lord. It begins with saying kamya, kamya, kamya. And then they go into the song. I believe that the Unigo spirituals that we, I call them non-Gala songs, were, you know, we oftentimes have kept the melodies, we've kept some of the um, um, tunes, but the language has been lost over time. How they actually would have sounded, this is now my musicological um, <laughs> thoughts now, but so for me it's about reconnecting that to its Galagish origins. Well, one of the things some people are familiar with is the myths of the low country, uh, the landscape, particularly the things that came out of the Charleston Renaissance in the 20s and 30s, haints and plat eyes. You're smiling, but a lot of white folks who grew up in the low country, they share those beliefs. 
every Gala person I've ever spoken to, or Galagatria person, they have stated that they have seen a plat eye or a hane to a boo hag. Mm. And it, it seems in they, I mean, they are just adamant in that, in that sense of seeing them. And it does kind of, you know, of course, I think um, some would say that the spiritual world is as real as the um, physical world. And so I think oftentimes in that culture, they go hand in hand because they would have this conjurer oftentimes who would, who would kind of um, hold both both worlds in their hands, the sense of being um, Christian yet still being, you know, that sense of spiritual. And, and that was important for the enslaved. Yeah, again, a, a personal story. My grandmother on my mother's side was born in 1890, and she lived most of her life down around Branchville and Denmark and all down that way. The stories told straight, dead-eyed, serious about the things they saw, things that you would consider supernatural, perhaps impossible if you're of scientific bent, but were as real to her as the Sunday meeting at the church. Right. Just as real. Yeah. You know, and again, back to the West African connections, that sense of spirit, spirits being in inanimate objects as well, you know, that, that sense of that tree, that that animal there, that plat eye that's now shaping, and that sense of boo-hack who can shed their skin and then you know, ride and then torment other people, that was as real to them. And some could say that that translates in their language, in their religion, and in their songs. Yes. You know, it's amazing when you, when you see the, the African-American um, religion, spirituality in all of its forms being very, very um, still, being very, very um, fervent, being very, very physical, and in, in that sense of getting to that frenzy, it encompasses so very much. You know, they were Christians, yet they very much were uh, tied to the ancestral, to a spiritual world, too. And as you saw the ring shout, that sense of connection to, you know, that being born and that death and a sense of being reborn again altogether. For, for, for folks from off, talk about a ring shout. It's a... Um, <laughs> It's this kind of this counterclockwise dance, and so the feet could not um, come off the ground, and the legs could not cross. But it was their sense of of having um, a fun time. It was their dance, and there's someone calling, right? Well, there was um, there were basers who would stand out, who were the kind of the the um, band. They would, they would they would clap and they would stomp, and then you have song lips inside who would keep it going. Again, and these songs were all religious. Yet again, they were they were really kind of um, bordering on having, to me, a the first a nightclub in a sense because they could they would show themselves hips would be gyrating, yet still these songs were all based upon the Bible. Like one was called Adam in a Garden picking up leaf, mm. and they would do it and it would speed up slowly and slowly and slowly. And then, of course, this frenzy would come upon them, this spirit. And you referred to the praise house, which is the term now used for houses of worship. Mm-hmm. But it started off as actually a P-R-A-Y house where prayers were said. Uh, it's now praise uh, is, the, is the common way it's displayed, but it started out as P-R-A-Y. And the old elders still say prayer house. They don't say praise house. They'll say this is a prayer house. And again, it was a place that they would begin in very formal ceremony. They would have a, 
prayer, they have scripture. Then they move the benches aside, and now it's time to move and have a, a good time in the Lord, though. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's important. Indeed. Yes, indeed. I have to ask a question now about the book, because this is the second edition. The first was in the, what, 2008 or thereabouts? Yes. Mm-hmm. How did you get involved? And, t- and tell me about uh, Wilbur Cross, who was the author of the original book. Editor, um, he, he was someone who um, uh, retired at Hilton Head, mm-hmm. and um, he had written, I think, like over 40 books. And so he uh, came upon this. I, be, I believe he was intrigued by this culture. And so he did several interviews, and um, he did some research, and Blair Publishing um, published this, this um, book here. And it was a wonderful kind of look at as many aspects of a culture as possible. You know, and so you have a music, art, a language, mm-hmm. celebrations, all the above. And so I was called um, um, maybe a year or so ago by Blair Publishing saying, Dr. Crawford, um, we were given your name, and would you consider doing a new edition? I said, well, it sounds great. But then they said, well, could you do it in three months? <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, is that possible? And because he said, well, yeah, this is a very popular book here and we need to have it, you know, mm-hmm. on the on the bookshelves here. And so I took upon myself to do a complete rewrite in three months. Um, wow. But um, I called upon friends to help. <laughs> and um, the, the thing that I will say, it stressed me so very much in areas I never thought about, food. <laughs> and so I was, I remember doing food and I said, well, maybe I'll do some recipes. <laughs> so I... I would call people, Emory Campbell, and say, well, now, how do you do that a recipe? He would say, well, Eric, this is what I do. And Brian Gerald as well. And they were very kind to share their recipes and their thoughts on various areas. Well, beginning in the 1960s and 70s, uh, scholars began to discover the Gullah world and write. And, of course, the late Charles Joyner uh, in Down by the Riverside put it on a big stage. But there were also African-Americans who began to do their own Anita Singleton Prather as Aunt Pearlie Sue, Ron and Natalie Days. This brought Gullah to a much larger stage. You know, I always tell people, um, Marlena Small as well, there are such great artists that oftentimes are not known globally and should be. Anita Singleton Prather, as you mentioned, Marlena Smalls, Ron and Natalie Days, these are wonderful talents that should be known by everyone. Well, I'll tell you what's... um, What's new for me, um, I'm going to Texas uh, tracing these black Seminoles who you know, fled from South Carolina down to Florida and now we're in Texas and, and uh, Mexico. And there was a, someone did a recording of a lady, old woman in New Mexico, who sang, this may be the last time, this got a song. She only spoke Spanish, but she remembered this song from her ancestors, this song that had been taught to her. And it's purely gala. And so I have that recording, which, which to me yeah, connects so well to the Johns Allen version of that song. And that sense of, though they, they've you know, left um, and they've been generation after generation, they still remember how important some of these things are, the food them songs are. This may be my last time. This may be my last time. This may be my last time. Maybe my last time, I don't know. I got 
Wow. English is not her language, but no. she, she remembered the Golo. Yes. And, you know, and these words may have no meaning to her in terms of what they mean, but she knew it was important to sing this song, to continue this tradition. That's amazing. It's sad that, in many ways, Gullah culture, as much as we're trying to uh, protect it, it's also under th- constant threat uh, yeah. through young people not carrying on traditions, whether it is the language or the folk art or, or what have you. People are moving away. And you think of what has happened to the development of our coast, and Gullah communities have been broken up. It's it's a challenging. I think that's why at a university, a college, we have an opportunity to be able to educate, and we have a this a wonderful young force of of people, of educators, of and so our students, for me, are our best allies here. I brought in my older singers, and they were singing the old songs, and the Clapton Choir has learned to speak and sing Gala. So, so to have the older singers there with them, and as they were being filmed, there was a dry eye there. The, those who were younger knew how important it was that they continue this culture. Because my singers from St. Helen Island are once 87, once 85, and soon they will not be singing. So they were grabbing onto this. As you mentioned, many communities, you know, they've lost their land. And the uh, raising and the um, higher taxes for these um communities, many times they can't afford it. And so then they lose their home again. And so for us, it's about finding a way to be able to, in fact, on St. Helena Island, there was a developer who wanted to build a golf course. And the community rose together to stop that. But that will continue. And it, it becomes, you know, how can we protect them, preserve them? And not just that, but understand how valuable they are to our culture going forward. All right. It's time for us to wind up. So any last words for our listeners? Well, I want to say for everyone, I'm sure, um, being here with you has always been my um, my greatest joy and my biggest wish. <laughs> so to be here a second time is just wonderful. So thank you for having me here, and thank you for being such a strong advocate for the Gullah culture. It's a very important part of all of our history here in South Carolina. I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. Gullah culture is foundational to the traditions and foodways of low country South Carolina. However, in the 21st century, it is a culture that faces steep challenges in trying to maintain the language, beliefs, and cultural touchstones that helped it thrive in the past. The efforts to preserve and promote Gullah culture in our state are important in maintaining traditions that are important to all South Carolinians. 
Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. I'm Alfred Turner, and I produce the show, which is made possible by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. Remember, the views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio or its underwriters. New episodes of Walter Edgar's Journal are published on the first and third Fridays of the month and are available at SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org on the SCETV app, as well as your favorite podcast provider. We'll talk again soon.